Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, let's come now to our text, Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. The title of the message today, The Gospel's Greatest Proof. We come today, as we said on Friday, from the darkest day, which was Good Friday, to the most glorious day, which is Resurrection Sunday morning. And what a joy indeed it is for us to gather together this Resurrection Sunday morning as brothers and sisters in Christ. It is nearly impossible to overstate the importance of this day in the life of Christians all over the world. In fact, I would simply say it like this. The entirety of Christianity rises and falls on the fact of the resurrection. That's not simply my opinion. That's exactly what the Bible teaches in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul, beginning verse 12. He said, Now if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there's no resurrection from the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you're still in your sins, And also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. Preachers have said for a long time that uh, people never change, but in every generation there's a new crop of fools. And in Paul's generation there were some foolish people who were teaching that Christ wasn't actually resurrected. And that same heresy has been perpetuated for 2,000 years. And in every generation, it bears some new name or some title or some new book, but the same heresy is the same. And Paul is keen to point out that if there's not a literal bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus, then Christianity would have died in its infancy. And he follows this logic. He says, if there's no resurrection, then Jesus has not been resurrected. And if Christ has not been resurrected, We've been preaching all these years in vain, something that's not true. And then if our preaching's in vain, the preaching that led to our salvation, then our faith's vain, it's not real. And if we're false witness of God, we become heretics ourselves because we've said things about God that aren't true if there's no resurrection, for God declared there is a resurrection. And then he says, if Christ has not been raised, here's what's most important to us, our faith is worthless. We're still lost if there's no resurrection. And then Paul goes on to say, but now there is a resurrection. And that's why we're here today, to rejoice and declare that Jesus is alive. So the question is beg, why such a heavy emphasis in the New Testament on the literal bodily resurrection? Well, simply put, the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus is the greatest proof of verification or vindication or whatever way you want to say it, that all that Jesus said and taught is true. The resurrection is the gospel's greatest proof. Now, Jesus had many proofs that he was who he claimed to be throughout his lifetime. He fulfilled 
an incredible number of prophecies from the Old Testament perfectly. He did incredible miracles. He walked on water. He raised the dead. He caused the blind to see. He taught, the scripture says, as one having authority, not like the others. Uh, there was a mountain of evidence that Jesus is who he claims to be, but none of those evidences are the greatest and ultimate proof that the gospel is true. I reserve that proof for the resurrection. See, the fact that the tomb is empty shows that God the Father was satisfied with the sacrifice of God the Son. That is, everything that he was to accomplish while he was on earth, he accomplished perfectly. Jesus said of himself that he only and always did the will of the Father. And that included, dear friends, his death, his burial, and yes, his resurrection. So let's gather around the word. Luke chapter 24, verse 1 through 12, our text this morning. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. And the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, also the other women with them, were telling these things to the apostles. But their words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of this, his word. Well, the first thing we see right away is an empty tomb. They came out. The first day of the week, which is Sunday morning, and that's why Christians for 2,000 years gather on what we call the Lord's Day, because it is the day that Jesus rose up from the grave. At early dawn, that word early dawn means early dawn. It means at the first crack of light. They were anxious. Remember that Friday they had followed Joseph of Arimathea, and they had seen where Jesus was laid, but they were devout women. And they could not do work on the Sabbath. And so they went home and prepared the spices. And then at the first available opportunity, Sunday morning, they got up and made their way again to the tomb to finish the preparation of the body. Verse 2 says, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And by the way, it's been said many times, but it bears repeating. The stone was removed not to let Jesus out, but to let the witnesses in. You see, Jesus had already received his resurrected body, fit for heaven. It was not confined to the physics of planet Earth as ours is today. And by the way, we're going to receive bodies like that one day, aren't we? Fit for heaven, able to last for eternity and be in the very presence of God. And so verse 3, I believe, and I said this to our staff this week as we read these verses together, may be the most important verse in all the Bible. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Are you glad of that? Are you glad that when they went in, they didn't find a corpse? Because if they had gone in and found the corpse, Christianity would have died in its infancy. As Paul said, 
we of all men are we most to be pitied because we put our faith and our hope and our belief that Jesus is God, that he's larger and greater and more powerful than death. But if death were able to hold him, the grave were able to keep him, he would just have been a man. And that's why I say the resurrection, the empty tomb, is the greatest proof that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. Now, let's look at this historic chronology of events leading up until this moment. Now, I started to go back to Good Friday, but let's go back just a little farther before the foundation of the earth, before any of us were born, when God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit and the secret counsels of the Most High determined to glorify themselves by the saving of the lost. And it was determined that the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, would break into human history at just the right moment to redeem a people unto himself through a perfect life, a substitutionary death, and a literal bodily resurrection. And then he did that, born of a virgin, not into regal robes, into a castle, but into a very common home. He humbled himself. He condescended. Philippians 2 says he emptied himself and took on the form of a man. And then he lived a perfect life. He was tempted, though, in every way that we are, yet without sin. Christ died for the ungodly. He died in our place, the once for all sacrifice for sins. And by the way, he literally died, didn't he? That was one of the heresies that has found its way into every generation that Jesus was only mostly dead when Joseph of Arimathea took him down from the cross. We call this the swoon theory. The idea is that Jesus, to the untrained eye, seemed dead. And when he was laid in that cool tomb somehow, he was resuscitated and was strong enough to push the stone away and, and walk away. Don't you believe it, friends? Jesus was dead. In fact, in that same book of 1 Corinthians 15 I quoted from a moment ago, Paul says the, the death and the burial and the resurrection, all three of those are essential components. Jesus was really dead. And Joseph of Arimathea knew that. The Roman soldiers knew that. And so he begged for the body of Jesus, and he received it. Scripture says he took it down from the cross. He and Nicodemus wrapped the body in 100 pounds of costly spices, and he graciously laid Jesus in his own hewn tomb. As I said, the women had followed him from afar because they loved the Lord, and they too wanted to prepare his body with spices. And so they went back home. And they observed the Sabbath. And then the first thing Sunday morning, they arrive back at the tomb and they find that the tomb was open. It had been sealed, you remember, by a Roman guard and had been stationed there because the Jewish authorities feared that the disciples might try to secret Jesus' body away and claim that he was alive. And you remember that an earthquake came in the night and an angel came and rolled the stone away and sat upon it. And these hardened, grizzled soldiers were so afraid that they were rendered unconscious. And an angel, as I said, sat upon the stone. By the way, as, as many have noted, uh, again, uh, these were angels. Um, one passage calls them men, but they were angels in the form of humanity. We see this a number of times in the scripture. Jesus had received his resurrected body. He was no longer there. 
And the women return to complete the task of anointing the Lord's body. And they find the stone removed. And going inside, they find the tomb is empty. But they don't have to wait long because they enter into conversation with these angels. Look at verse 4. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, why do you seek the living one among the dead? And he is the living one, isn't he? In the middle of a graveyard, they were looking for the person who's most alive. He's not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified in the third day, rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to eleven and to... The rest. Now, the word angelos is the Greek word from which we get the word angel. It literally means messenger. Luke tells us that there were two men, but the context and taking all four gospel accounts into consideration, it is clear that these were angels appearing in human form. They were wearing gleaming clothing, the scripture says, bright and iridescent in the sunlight. And we see in the book of Daniel, when Daniel was confronted by angels, Two of them, in fact, and they were dressed very similar. It might have been the same two angels. The angels have a question. It's a rhetorical question for these women, and in it there is a slight hint of rebuke. He says, why are you seeking the living one among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. This is truly a glorious message from the angels. But as I said, it bears a slight rebuke. In their grief... The women had failed to remember the Lord's own teaching that he would arise again on the third day. Now, why do you think they forgot that? That seems like something that would be nearly impossible to forget. Someone predicts their own death and their own resurrection. Well, I don't think we should be too hard on these women. I think they were truly overcome with grief. They loved the Lord so dearly that their minds were addled and, and they were confused. So where in the scripture... Does it say that Jesus predicted his own resurrection? Well, a number of places. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Also in Matthew, Matthew chapter 17, verse 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And then perhaps most clearly, Mark chapter 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So as I say, don't be too hard on these women. They have proven to be some of the Lord's most faithful disciples. Let's remind ourselves a little bit about the specifics uh, of these eyewitnesses. Look at verse 10. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. Mary Magdalene. Lots have been written over the years about Mary Magdalene, some of it true, some of it apocryphal. She was from Galilee. We know that about her. That's where Jesus spent a good portion of his ministry. That's where most of Jesus' disciples were from. 
We know that there in Galilee, the Lord Jesus had delivered her from demon possession. She became a very devout follower of Jesus Christ. She was known for her thankfulness uh, for the rest of her life, and it manifested itself all the way up to the resurrection. And uh, she was the first, all four gospel writers share with us that she was the first human being to see the risen Lord Jesus. Another lady that's mentioned here is Joanna. We're told that Joanna, her husband, was the steward of the house of Herod Antipas. You remember Herod Antipas was that wicked Idumean governor who mocked Jesus, put a robe upon him. He wanted to be entertained by Jesus. This is the same Herod Antipas who put to death John the Baptist. And in his very household, there was a faithful couple who were Christians. And we're told that Joanna used her means as a way to support the disciples during their traveling ministry. And we thank the Lord for women like Joanna. And then there was Mary, the mother of James. And Mary, the mother of James, uh, traveled with Jesus for a number of years. And the scripture says there were others. One of the others that we are aware of is Mary, the mother of Jesus. And then there was, of course, Mary's sister, Jesus' aunt. And then there was Salome, who was the mother of James and John. This is the same Salome who came to Jesus and made a request of him. He says, Jesus, when you come in your kingdom, do this for me. Let one of my sons sit on your left and one on your right. Of course, she really didn't know what she was asking. She didn't know what kind of cup they had to drink from. Now, it's interesting taking what we just read in verse 10 and the biographies of these wonderful women of faith, that there still is this persistent lie that is being told among the lost and dying world that Christianity is somehow anti-women. Now, nothing could be farther from the truth. Women have in the past and throughout the scriptures and always will have a place of prominence since the earliest days of Christianity. Jesus, as we see here, first appeared to women after his resurrection rather than to his inner circle of disciples. And so that is just yet another one of the lies that Satan has um, prevailed upon the church to try to diminish the power and authority of the word. And of course, it's simply a lie. Now we come to verse 10, the marvelous truth. Now there were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, and he saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. Now, the human instinct, once one has received wonderful and surprising and good news, is to share it. You've had that experience, right? When you found out you're going to have a new grandbaby, you can't wait, get on the phone, get on the internet, tell all your friends, you get a new job, you get a bonus at work. The instinct every human has is to share wonderful and surprising news. And friends, the most wonderful and marvelous and glorious news that anyone could ever have is that Jesus is alive. And it is our task, it is our joy, it is our privilege to go and tell that truth to the nations. In fact, the last thing that Jesus has recorded 
as having said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28, is go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey whatsoever I have commanded you. And so here is the, the marvelous good news, and it's ready to go out all over the world. Remember, Jesus had predicted in his earthly ministry, often spoke in parables, that the gospel, though it's as small as a mustard seed, would one day grow up, would be large enough for the birds of the field to roost, the animals of the field to be sheltered by it. And that's exactly what has happened. Millions, if not billions of people around the world today are celebrating the glorious good news that Jesus is alive. Now, Luke does not give us great detail about what happened next. From the other gospel writers, we know that, that Mary left right away and was going to make her way uh, back to where the disciples were, where she ran into someone. And in her grief, she didn't recognize it immediately as Jesus. But when he spoke her name, she knew it was the Lord. And what a wonderful time that must have been. And, and uh, he appeared to, to many others. Scripture says several times he appeared to the twelve. But, but here's a fact we tend to forget. There was at least one occasion where he was witnessed to by 500 believers at once. And so the empty tomb and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is verified by hundreds of eyewitnesses. Now you put that in contrast to Jesus' trial that ultimately led to his death upon the cross those Pharisees, though they tried to pay many people, could not come up with two people to say the same thing. And yet, here is truth on display. It's obvious. The tomb was empty. There's no body. There's no Jesus, except there is Jesus. And he appeared to hundreds of people along the way. And at the time that the Bible was written, many of those people were still alive. And they had dispersed themselves throughout the known world, and the gospel was going out with great power. But unfortunately, as you know, if you share your faith with any degree of frequency at all, not everyone is excited as we are about the resurrection, are they? Isn't it disappointing when you have great news and you rush and you can't wait to share it with your best friend or your family member and it's greeted with a yawn or a shoulder shrug? Well, that's uh, apparently how these women felt. They, they ran to where the disciples were, but the scripture says they did not believe them. Not only did they did not believe them, they would not believe them because they spoke as making nonsense. So it's obviously clear that just as the women failed to remember that Jesus said he was going to rise from the grave, so too the disciples had failed to remember. You, you would have thought they would have been waiting with ancient breath. You'd have thought all of them would have been there first thing Sunday morning to see the empty tomb for themselves. But not only did they not go, they did not believe the women who did go. And so don't be crushed or disappointed when people don't immediately respond with enthusiasm when you share the gospel. In fact, uh, the scripture says that these things are spiritually discerned and understood. We can't save anybody through our enthusiasm. If we could, we would. Salvation is a miracle work of the Holy Spirit. And God in His sovereignty has chosen a way in which people can be saved. The Scripture says, faith 
cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And we see at least one enthusiastic response, and that is the Apostle Peter. Look at verse 12. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrapping only. Now, we don't know how old Peter was at the time, probably uh, early middle age, maybe. Certainly past the point where it would be dignified to run through the city at five or six o'clock in the morning. But uh, he didn't care. He wanted to see if what the women had said were true. When he got there, he, he stooped down and, and went into that opening. And there he saw the linen wrapping of the Lord Jesus that he had been wrapped in on Friday night, folded neatly and lying on the table. Now, we're not told what Peter believed at that moment. I'm sure his head was spinning. I'm sure as he stood up, he thought about the last three and a half years, how the Lord had called him and told him to come with him and he'd make him a fisher of men, how he helped to distribute the loaves and fish when Jesus fed the 5,000. I'm sure he remembered Jesus walking on the water. I'm sure he certainly remembered about to drown in the Sea of Galilee and the Lord reached out to him and saved his life. He was there when Jesus raised the dead. And yet, he's still a little confused. In fact, the scripture says he went away marveling at what had happened. But he doesn't have to wait long. As we're going to see in, in weeks ahead, the Lord graciously appeared to Peter even when he seemed to have lost his faith and he restored him and he used him for his glory. So don't be discouraged when people aren't excited about the resurrection as you are, you remain excited because it is the greatest news in the world. And here's why. Because every human being is born into this world with a death sentence. I think more so in the last 12 or 13 months than any time in my life, I have seen the fear of death among human beings. Death has become very real to us. And, and that's important. We should never be flippant or naive about death. It's a serious thing. It's the result of man's disobedience to God. Sin's curse passed upon every subsequent generation, including our own. But here's the wonderful news. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish. That means to perish ultimately. Yes, Hebrews tells us it's pointing to every man wants to die and then to be judged. But we don't have to fear that death. The scripture says, don't fear the man that can kill the body. Fear the, one, fear the one who can kill the body and cast the soul into hell. And the one that can cast your soul into hell has sent his own son to die in your place upon the cross. So we call that substitutionary atonement. He covered your sin and my sin. And if you'll put your faith and trust in Him, here's what happens. All of your sin is transferred to Him on the cross. And His righteousness is transferred to your account. That's the greatest exchange that the world has ever known. And that's why Romans chapter 8 verse 1 is so exceedingly great and precious to every Christian. It simply says this, There is therefore now no condemnation or those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, what about you? Are you in Christ Jesus? You say, I don't know. Well, you can be. Uh, the scripture says that this gift of salvation is appropriated 
by faith alone. You'll see no evidence in the scripture of Jesus telling people to do enough good deeds to outweigh their bad deeds, to, to write a big check to the church and make up for their transgressions. No. In fact, Paul says it like this. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We had no ability to respond to God. We had no uh, power to. And yet he reached out to us. And by his miracle work, he granted us faith and repentance. You remember the Philippian jailer when Paul was arrested there in Philippi. An earthquake came in the middle of the night and he, thinking the prisoners were going to escape, pulled his sword out and was going to commit suicide. Paul told him to put his sword up, do himself no harm, for we are all here. And he was so impressed with Paul and his companions that he moved to ask the question, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And again, Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart and you'll be saved. Romans 10, 9 and 10, again the Apostle Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And then he puts an exclamation point on his message like this. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Friend, if you'll call upon the name of the Lord Jesus today, you'll be saved. You'll understand the resurrection event in a fundamentally different way. And you'll have a heaven as your home and the Holy Spirit in your heart. Let's pray and thank Him for that truth. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for the Word of God. And we thank You, Father, for the truth of the resurrection. It's true every day of the week. But Father, it's especially poignant today when we think about that empty tomb. I thank You, Father, for those events that are recorded in history because they're absolutely true. In fact, they are the greatest words we could ever hear, that the women found the tomb was empty. And that tells us that Jesus is alive, and that tells us that God the Father is perfectly pleased and satisfied with the sacrifice of the Son. And for all of us who put our faith and trust in Him, we do not fear death or die. In fact, as Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so, Father, I pray if there's even one in the sound of my voice today who knows you not in the free pardon of sin, that you, Father, would grant to them the miracle of faith and repentance. And for every believer, Lord, I pray that we will be edified and built up in our faith as a result of having been here today. We give you glory in advance for all you're going to do. And we pray it in the strong name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.